1: Our system of upholding this model minority concept leads people to believe they've pulled themselves up by the bootstraps and because of all of the injustice and the hardships that they've had to endure, that anyone else can do it too. And that's something I realized that before I can even have a conversation with my parents about the injustice of today and why Black Lives Matter, I needed to do more work to understand everything that they've been through. So that's where the conversation had to start because otherwise I'm coming from a place of privilege in relationship to the experiences that my parents have been through. Hi there, I'm Lulu G. (laughs)
2: but we're no one's model minority.
0: This is a show about all of you for all of us. Today, we're talking to Lulu Ji, co-founder and CEO of Elix, a wellness company focused on personalized Chinese medicine for women's health. Lulu and I have known each other for a few years now. And I actually worked with her when she was first coming up with her company. So learned a lot about her background and also her passion points. And it was really good to have her on the
2: show. I don't know when this episode's going to air, but a lot of some of these recordings are happening in mid-June. And while we're trying to create quote unquote evergreen content, we can't help but talk about what's going on in the world and how it's impacting. Well, to be very direct, it's impacting one community more than others, but how other communities are reacting and thinking about things has really made some of these conversations real and necessary and and just really enlightening. Like we talked about uh, stuff that's going on in the Asian community and the reactions people are having based on heritage, right? Yeah. How, I don't know if you guys saw the Hassan Minhaj episode after the George Floyd killing, but it's a really good one to understand what's going on in the Asian community. And again, not as important, <laughs> but it, it's kind of like reconciling the differences of opinions between the generations. Sure. Right? Yeah. And we really got into that with, with Lulu and it, it really framed the way I'm thinking about my parents right now.
0: Yeah. And what's what's funny about her situation, as you'll hear in the episode, is she's holed up in a house right now with both her own parents, her parents and her and her mother-in-law so because of covid they all live under the same roof and i think she had said they have dinner with each other every night and so as they talk about what's happening in the world and they talk about black lives matter and they talk about systemic injustices her really having to educate her own parents as well as a, like the older generation who also had their own experiences of injustices
2: and well and and that's where they're coming from. Like and it's not that someone is right or wrong. I do believe that there are rights and wrongs right now, to be very clear. But understanding where they are coming from, why they might have the belief, because the experience our parents had, yours and mine Sharon, and a lot of our audience who might not be white American, like is so much different than the privileged experience you and I have Mm -hmm. had as kids, you know, like whatever we experienced as kids. And again, not to diminish what has been going on for 400 years in the black community, but what the immigrant experience in this country was not necessarily a kind or always welcoming one.
0: Absolutely. And so that's where they're, I think
2: that's where our parents' generation is coming from. Mm -hmm. So I can at least, I don't have to agree with it, but I can now understand it a little bit better.
0: Yeah, I think they're coming from a perspective of coming to a country having to start from nothing and maybe even starting from negative, if we can look at it that way. Right. A lot of immigrants sacrificed a ton, they gave up a lot of things, they had to sometimes leave loved ones behind in order to come to America and make a better future for themselves. And so I think when the older, we keep saying older generation, sometimes I do wonder though, if it's like first generation immigrants. But when we, when we look at that experience and we think coming to a country, having to learn a language, having to establish yourself, working really, really, really hard. And then at the same time, having to be successful in a way that was acceptable. I mean, Lulu tells us the story of her own father and how by day he was a professor at a university. And by night he was working as a, as a server in a restaurant and getting paid, you know, under the table in cash to make ends meet. And it's that disparity of, you know, having a day job that's respectable and that has some kind of like public authority, but then having to almost have this secret life that it would require just to just to even stay afloat in this new country.
2: Yeah, and and again, understanding that, to be clear, it, that was still a choice versus black americans did not have a choice. And I'm not, yes. I'm, not I'm literally yes. not trying to argue a point for sure. It, it just goes without saying like acknowledging where first generation immigrants mentality is around this issue or at least where they're coming from. To, to me that was like the most powerful unlock for me as i think about my own parents journey again I, I don't necessarily need or have to agree with some of the things and i want to force a conversation on the correction of that but again lulu kind of raised the point for the first time that i'd really thought through is just understand where they're coming from and it's like okay and i do now um and i think that was really good and she's just really cool yeah. <laughs> like i really like talking to she's lulu.
0: awesome she is so awesome so we really think you're gonna love this episode and here's our friend lulu
2: Lulu, thanks for being on the pod.
1: Thanks so much, Raman.
2: So, Lulu, you're kind of famous in the business world, but and we'll talk about some of that. But you're we're
0: really- totally famous. I love that. I love that we started out with saying that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and Sharon helped get us there. Aw, so sweet. Yeah, I know,
2: right? <laughs> Lulu, can you tell us a story about your childhood before you were famous?
1: Well, it's an interesting time that you're asking this question because i think the past the past week or two has been really just heartbreaking for me and many others in the us with the recent tragedies and even saying that it's been heartbreaking and it's been a space for me to reflect upon my childhood and the institutional forces that shaped it i recognize is is a statement of privilege that as I came to this country when I was five years old, I was actually born in China in Hunan at a hospital that my grandfather ran. And my dad initially came to the U.S. to with the typical immigrant dream to create a better future for us. And when I was five, my grandma brought me over here after my dad had been the country for four years on his own. And I remember as a five year old with a name, Lulu, coming into an American preschool not speaking a word of English. The first couple of months, I was utterly taunted and made fun of every single day. Lulu rhymes with poo-poo. I didn't know how to ask to go to the bathroom my first day of school. So I remember coming home and asking my dad in Chinese, how do I say I need to go pee? And he said, you raise your hand and you say, teacher, can I go pee? And so that's what I did the next day when I went to school. And you can imagine what happened after that, after the new Chinese immigrant girl raises her hand and says, teacher, can I go pee? The entire class started laughing and I became new or I became or I was made fun of that much more after that. And I think it was these early experiences of coming to America, recognizing that I was so different and that for the next you know, 15 years after that, I desperately tried to fit in and tried to act and become as white as possible. And so what that meant was having only white friends, doing all the stereotypical things, becoming a cheerleader in high school, running for student government, joining a sorority in college, exclusively dating men who were white. And, you know, as a result of that really turning my back on chinese culture and language and heritage in an effort to really assimilate
0: you know
2: i, I can really no it's just
0: interesting yeah, yeah, cuz i've known you for a while now lulu and i've known i mean we've joked about how you're like a white girl inside but i actually never heard that side of the story so thank you for sharing thank you for sharing that with us
1: well and so i think it, it for me at least it's kind of it's come full circle because at least with Elix and the business, and I know we'll get into it later, but Elix is really the first to personalize Chinese herbal medicine for women's health. and Chinese medicine and herbs are such a huge part of my upbringing, my grandparents, my family. But it was something that I had always kind of part of this, you know, effort to become more white and to act white and to kind of be more on the inside. That I definitely turned my back on until until a point in my life where I really needed them. But you know, given everything that's going on in the country, I've been reading White Fragility. I've been looking more into Asian American history, and Rama and I were just talking about this, but really how beyond just the individual experience. And I know so many of us as immigrants or as minorities, whatever that minority aspect of our identities might be, have tried so hard to fit into what is what is the predominant culture. And that's really kind of a, more of like a white male created culture in this society, because that's really how we're socialized and taught that this is how you...
2: Well, that's how you get ahead. You know, that's...
1: Right, exactly.
2: Before we started recording, I was talking, you know, there's this other podcast guest, a black friend of mine who I started my career with. And he's going to be on the show in a few weeks. But he was like, I have issues with your show name. And it's something Sharon and I have known. Like we've been like staring into the headwind of this since we came up with the show premise and the idea that it's a tricky term, right? Like model minorities... It's a kind of a term that was used to pit the races against each other in the 70s as the Asian Exclusion Act was being overturned or expired or whatever you want to call it. But they only let engineers and doctors or highly skilled people in. And part of that, even like I think about my parents not wanting me to speak Hindi or Punjabi as a kid, was to assimilate and fit in and move to the burbs and be part of the white culture. Because, I mean, shit, Indian people, my parents' generation, they were colonialized, right? They were born on the – and so white British culture was a, a part of society. We drink tea. I'm drinking a cup of tea in the afternoon right now because of the <laughs> queen. You
1: know, like, well, and where did tea come from? Let's think about right. that. Right. Yeah, And that's what I find so interesting about the history of colonialization. It's like we lose the sources of all of these things like China, like porcelain, you know, where did that come from? And when I think about all of these new standards in the beauty industry, like clean beauty that was in America, that was originally something that many of the slaves and or indigenous cultures used because they couldn't afford what was premium luxury beauty in mainstream society. When I think about herbs, herbalism was something always used about indigenous communities of color or that immigrants brought over because they could not afford the Western medical care.
2: I want to tell you a business idea I had And this talks to that. In teens and 20s, people with Sanskrit tattoos and whatever, Chinese t-shirts and stuff was really popular, right? And it annoyed me to no degree as a (laughs) self-hating Asian. And I was like, my business idea, I'm just going to air it so someone else will execute it, please, was, I don't know about you, there is a word for foreigner or white person in Hindi. And I mean, I know what that word is in Chinese, and I know what that word is in Japanese, whatever. And I'm not going to say what it is. But it was going to be to figure out how to write that word in Hindi, in Sanskrit, in the script, right? And totally market that it means like peace or love. Right. So everyone would get tattoos and t shirts, and I would make so much money off of all the like non Indians <laughs> getting it. And they would think it's like peace or love, but then all Indian people would totally know. Like I might not know because I don't, I can't read Hindi, but my parents would be like, you know, that means that. And I'd be like, oh, sweet. And then I would learn <laughs> Hindi. So that is my business idea. But no, I, it's like I walk into a yoga studio and I'm not woke and I don't do yoga to be very clear, but I feel white eyes looking at me like, oh, how come mm. you don't embrace your own culture? I'm like, eh, nah. because
0: I was forced to yeah. Yeah. I don't know if you guys feel that yeah. when
2: you walk into kind of like the hijacking yeah. of the, the culture.
0: Definitely. And yeah. I think from a Chinese perspective, it's because I, I grew up here. I was born here. And when I was growing up, ironically, as you guys kind of know, I've talked about this a lot, but I grew up around Chinatown. So I was always in the Chinese community. But I remember being embarrassed to speak Chinese in public, you know, or even at home, my parents, my, my mom's from Hong Kong, but at home when we we're young, they used to try to speak Chinese and, and then we just kind of all reverted to English. And so what happened was over time, I kind of naturally lost touch with that. And then I'll go into places where I see, I went into this traditional Chinese medicine place the other day and it was all white people getting acupuncture certifications or getting herbalist certifications. And they looked at me, I looked at them, and I I was kind of like, whoa, it's weird to see you guys here. And then they were kind of like, whoa, it's weird to see you here, and you don't even know what these characters mean. Like (laughs) 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 completely reversed
2: in that way. But I can't win because you go back to India and I'm really American. Yeah, Yeah. that's actually what
1: happened to me in, in my 20s. When I remember traveling around the world and when I was a freshman in college, I went to Paris for the first time with a girlfriend that summer. We saved up money working all summer at the end of summer to go to Paris for the first time. And people would ask us, we were two Chinese American girls. People would ask us, where are you from? And we would say, America. And they would say, no, where are you really from? And it's that question, whenever you travel as an Asian American, as any people always wondering, assuming almost like America is not your home. And then when I also spent time studying abroad and living and working in China, people there would ask me where I'm from. I'd say American. They'd say, no, no, no. You're probably Korean, right? Because because I was there learning Chinese and there were characters I couldn't read, Sharon, to your point. And I wasn't that great. And I'm still not great at using chopsticks. And I was actually living in Beijing with my then six foot three white boyfriend who used chopsticks better than I could. And so we would ask the waitress at what restaurants for chopsticks and she'd come and she'd bring it to my white boyfriend. And then he'd hand the chopsticks to me and everyone in the restaurant. It was like a collective gasp, like, oh my gosh, she doesn't know how to use chopsticks, and the white man can.
0: That's very funny.
1: But I feel like it's been I, uh... that place of in between. It, it made me at least realize, wow, there's actually so much a part of my culture that I've turned my back on that it is so fundamental to who I am. And I guess it was that process kind of in my early 20s of starting to revisiting the language, learning more about the culture and really trying to come to terms and holding both identities of being Chinese and being American simultaneously. And, that, and that's, I feel like for any immigrant, for any minority, really. Really challenging to do.
2: How are you either the same or different from that little kid? How have you changed from the little girl who came or What do you still carry with you from back then? Or what has changed about you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think what I always carry is this idea of not tolerating the, or wanting to fight against, wanting to understand where these feelings of discomfort arises and how do we do something about that? And I think the past couple of weeks, all of the, seeing the heartbreak and Sharon, I know you mentioned talking about in a previous episode, seeing the videos of police brutality and the guilt, the discomfort, and just being inspired to really do something about it and how so much of the work that we have is on an individual basis. You know, back then that little girl was feeling the injustice of being called out as different. And so the work that she did was to become the same and to become one of them. And now I think where I am in my life is seeing how becoming one of many in this overall system is actually what keeps the system of injustice, racism, discrimination in place through our social norms, through our collective culture, through our legal institutions, through our political system, through our criminal justice system, and so forth. And so when I think about the work that's ahead is if we collectively feel that these systems are unjust and they're forcing us to all be the same in a way that we don't agree with, then it's on us as individuals to first see the system our role? How have we been complicit due to our own pain? And now where do we take that? How can we create the space for more diverse perspectives within ourselves and within our families and within our communities? And I guess the past couple days and week in particular, it's been a lot of really painful and challenging conversations with my own immigrant family, especially the older generations who feel like, they suffered many hardships and discrimination in making it in America. My dad has so many stories of being, he came over here as an adjunct professor, but yet was not paid enough on, and he was paid, I think, $1,200 a month when he came over here as an adjunct professor that he ended up having to work another job. But because of his status of his visa and being a professor, he could only work under the table. And so what my dad did was he worked under a table as a server at a local Chinese restaurant getting paid in cash. And because he only made $1,200 a month and he was trying to save up money to bring my mom and I over, he didn't have a lot to spend on transportation. So he worked at a restaurant within walking distance from the university. And he would tell me how embarrassing it was when he was a professor by day and then at night sometimes his students would see him bussing tables at this Chinese restaurant.
2: Wow. I've been having some pretty interesting discussions with my parents right now, and I'm, I'm genuinely curious about how they're feeling because, yeah, our parents, their generation left a lot of things behind, and they did have to suffer. But I don't know if it's the fact that my folks are in Alabama and in a different news bubble than I am or even social bubble, right, of the people you talk to, the Facebook posts and the WhatsApp posts that you see. But I I don't deny that there were problems. But I don't agree with the statement, all lives matter. Literally, yeah, sure, the statement makes sense. But it's being used as evil marketing right now. And I was trying to figure out a response to my mom the other day. And God, I hope this episode doesn't air for at least a month, because the the, the wounds and the argument's very fresh. But I'm trying to figure out how to tell my mom. Yeah, but Right now, all lives don't matter because Black lives don't matter. That's the problem. And we have to address these issues one at a time, not in the macro. If we don't stop the systemic kind of micro things, we're never going to solve the bigger problem. I don't know. And again, I think where it's framed out of why my mom and maybe dad are susceptible to that is either, again, the news bubble they're in in the South, or... Their own – I mean, they came and had – I mean, brown people in Alabama in the 70s, you know, my dad being overlooked for things throughout his career. Same with my mom, right? And it's like I don't discount the pain and the hardship. And you're, it's terrible what your dad went through. And there's a pride element to it, right? But you swallow the pride because he's got to take care of his family. So, I mean, I got to ask, where, where are your parents? Where's their head right now? Because they're of the different generation.
1: Right. So it's interesting because of shelter in place. I've been actually, I left New York City and I, my husband and I have been living with my parents and my mother-in-law, the five of us for the past three months. And so typically you could have a phone conversation. If it doesn't go so well, I could hang up and, yeah, yeah, and talk yeah. about it for a few <laughs> weeks, but we literally have dinner together every night. And so it's been, it's been many hours of these conversations. And I would say the first day it didn't go so well. My dad was, talking about, oh, the riots and how Chinatown is really suffering. I was like, the riots, what about the lives? What about where this passion and this injustice is coming from? And and then my dad was like, well, they, they should protest peacefully. I was like, dad, the system has failed. There is no peaceful protesting. Look at all the protesters protesting. And then that's where I realized there is, to your point, an information gap. A lot of what the Chinese news medias have reported, at least in the initial days, I think they're showing more of both sides of the story now, but was only of the violence and not of the other side of all the peaceful protests and.
2: Yeah. Not the nuance, right?
1: Right, right, right. But then I think that's where this concept of bootstrap theory really comes to play because as a, our s- system of upholding this model minority concept leads people to believe that they've pulled themselves up by the bootstraps, and because of all of the injustice and the hardships that they've had to endure, that anyone else can do it too. And that's something, you know, has been really, I realized that before I can even have a conversation with my parents about the injustice of today and why Black Lives Matter, I needed to do more work to understand everything that they've been through. And so that's kind of where the conversation had to start because otherwise I'm coming, I'm starting this conversation about Black Lives Matter from a place of privilege in relationship to the experiences that my parents have been through. And that's what breaks my heart when I see there's so much on Instagram and Twitter right now of younger immigrant or asian generations calling their parents racist calling saying that their parents are backwards and all of that and it makes me wonder because this is where i failed when i first started having these conversations with my parents how much time have we as the younger more educated more privileged generation here in america really taken the time to pause and understand really understand beyond just one or two stories the years and the multiple instances of discrimination and injustice are parents had to endure and help them see that that's wrong and that, yes, they were strong, they worked hard, they made it through, but does that mean other people should have to as well? And just because that was their experience, does that mean it can actually be replicated by others?
2: Yeah, because of certain advantages. I actually really, I have this idea and I don't (laughs) have time for a fourth podcast, so please someone else do this. I want to do this show and literally only talk to our parents.
0: I think that'd be so interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. That'd be yeah. More powerful.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so someone else needs to do it. Lulu, it's on you. Go. <laughs> You're stuck at home with them. <laughs> I mean,
1: we're making, we're making progress. But <laughs> slowly but say, surely. <laughs> yeah, slowly but surely. I think my mother-in-law is definitely coming around. She is committed when we go back to New York City. We all agree that there's a systemic issue that starts with education and the education gap. And kind of the next conversation of the day is helping to understand or talking about the healthcare gap, because that's what I feel like systems of racism really are. It's down across our social and our various different institutions in society. And that's something for Elix, we're really passionate about is as a company that was founded with the mission of democratizing access to proven natural solutions for women's health and shattering that glass ceiling of what women have access to from a holistic health perspective. It's really interesting because I think Raman, to your point of what is the power of the dominant culture and in America, it's really been a dominant white male culture, the very systems of oppression. We're talking about Black Lives Matter today, but it's also the same systems that have been used to kind of keep women in our place for decades.
2: Yeah. I like how marketer to, or ex-marketer to marketer, I, I love how you <laughs> move in with your business because that's interesting that your product is built as a democratizing element. To a degree. Or that's, I don't know if that's in your... Oh,
1: it 100% is. It's part of our our mission. Because beyond the product, one of our goals is really education. Because today in America, 58% of women are prescribed hormonal birth control pills to manage a menstrual-related symptom. And there's so many studies on the side effects of long-term birth control use that... As we know, pharmaceutical companies spend billions of dollars a year in marketing to bury and or to re-educate doctors of why it's not that bad, when in reality, birth control is one of the biggest moneymakers of essentially all pharmaceutical companies. It's a SaaS product. It's a product women will pay monthly for and use for decades of her life. And we've created these social norms where it's really taboo to talk about. Even bleeding through our pants is like the ultimate embarrassing thing. Or as women who demand equality in the workplace, how could we let ourselves, like let ourselves feel less than a hundred percent? And how can we contribute to this narrative? We can't, which is why we power through it. We don't acknowledge the pain that and the suffering that we have to endure on a monthly basis so that we could show we're every bit as strong and as equal and as deserving as men and it's all of these reinforcing systems that continue to keep these chronic health conditions behind closed doors and prevents us from finding solutions and so whether or not she uses our product for personalized personalized herbal formulas. We have a free online, a health assessment that anyone can take. It's quite exhaustive. It's about 50 to 60 questions and takes about 10 minutes where she could learn more about her cycle, her health. And we actually show at the end of it, the different herbs that could help her with her underlying imbalance. And we also have a blog and part of our commitment doing our reflection is how do we promote more diverse voices and perspectives on our blog? Because there are so many women's health issues that disproportionately impact Black lives.
2: Birth control is a really interesting thing. I love the analogy. I not like, but I find it very interesting. Birth control is like the original SaaS. And for listeners, SaaS is software as a service, whether that's your subscription email server or your Netflix subscription, you pay a monthly fee and you're locked in forever because you don't want to miss out, right? And thinking of birth control as, as SaaS is a very provocative statement because I can see both sides of it and I'm kind of, I got to check that I am a dude. So I, I know I'm getting into weird territory for, do I have the right to comment on this? But I feel like we even had a guest that said birth control has been one of the most empowering things for women at the same time. Like family planning is, it gives a woman's almost like more platitudes back to participating in society.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. A hundred percent. We are not anti-birth control. We are anti-birth control as the only solution for chronic conditions it was not created for. Birth control is a contraceptive. It should be used in that way. But when 58% of people are being prescribed it off-label to manage menstrual-related symptoms. Women deserve better. And in our country, when only 4% of healthcare research and development dollars goes towards women's health issues, women deserve better. I mean, up until the 1990s, women were systematically excluded from scientific studies because we were viewed by the mostly white male research and scientific community as being little men. (laughs)
0: Wow! I never knew that. Wow.
1: Yeah, there was a congressional panel and looking at reforming the NIH in the in 1990 that basically forced into reform that allocated more funding towards women's health issues. But we're we're still only at four percent. But four percent is better than zero percent. But some of the biggest landmark studies in American history, like longitudinal studies, were only include included male participants, even studies on women's health issues, the use of estrogen in treating menopause. I find it, or it was for breast cancer. I find it astonishing that that study included 10,000 men and no women on breast cancer.
0: (laughs) That's crazy. That's crazy, Lulu. A breast cancer study with men
1: it is crazy. And in America today, there are still somewhere between 500 to 700,000 hysterectomies performed annually where women's body parts are removed. And it's estimated that so much of that could be unnecessary if we just found more natural ways, whether it's through diet, lifestyle, and or herbal remedies to solve for these chronic inflammatory conditions.
2: Yeah, it's not that the Western medical complex is the only one, and I, I think that's we have that. Like when I lived in Asia for a year, this this woman I worked with was going back to school to become a Chinese doctor, and I learned a lot about herbal medicine and even Ayurvedic in in India. But it's the idea that the Western way isn't the only way. It doesn't have to be you know the most advanced pharmaceutical country because you just look at some of our stats. We spend the most on healthcare and have the worst outcomes. Yeah, right and. I'm just saying there's not only one way, I guess, is my learning. Yeah.
0: And and a quick is. a quick thought on that and then I, I wanna ask Lulu a question about her. But for me, I know I I didn't become woke, as we'll say, to a lot of that until I was about to have a baby for the first time. And always kind of same like exactly what you're saying, Lulu, was was prescribed birth control, not because of period pains, but just like just kind of always thought drugs were the way to go growing up in this country, it was just a doctor hand you a prescription. You just take it. You don't really ask any questions. And it wasn't until I was making some decisions about how I wanted to labor and how I wanted to give birth that I realized I had a choice. It was like, either I can give birth in a hospital, probably get a C-section, get an epidural, do that whole thing. Or I can actually do something as rogue as having a baby at home. And I was like, Whoa. And I ended up choosing something in between. I, I ended up giving birth in a birthing center and stuff. But that was the first moment in my life. And that was when I was an adult about to be a mom that I realized I didn't I could unplug from the healthcare system and actually had the free will to make a healthy choice for both myself and my future child that wasn't completely on the books and, and sort of the way that Western medicine would prescribe. And even being able to deliver in a birthing center, I had to jump through a lot of hoops. There were all these different requirements of being really, really low risk. And like, you know, all of your blood tests had to come back perfect. All of these things just to make sure that in order to give birth naturally, like, and that's, you know, naturally, you had to meet this invisible list of criteria in order for that to be deemed safe in the Western world. And that blew my mind. Because really, it's like, it's a bottle. I mean, not that it's that simple. I think, you know, there's a lot can go wrong in childbirth, but it's a bodily function, right? The same way that menstruating and going to the bathroom is a bodily function. So we've covered poop and periods (laughs) and childbirth.
2: (laughs) Oh, we did 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 pee too, guys. Pee and
0: childbirth, perfect, and periods. So Lulu, I'm curious to know, you've become this amazing entrepreneur and advocate. What did your parents want you to be? when you were growing up? What were their plans for your career?
1: Oh, and Sharon, thank you for sharing your story. That's part of, I think, the driving motivation behind Alex is getting to hear about different women's journeys to finding their voice and being her own best advocate in the doctor's office and in life. And at Elix, we are not anti-doctors. We're not anti-birth control. We're not anti-Western medicine, but we are for helping women become that advocate so that she can make the best decisions for herself. And (laughs) it's funny because I had, so my parents actually wanted me to be something very stereotypical. I think like a, a doctor or not doctor. They knew I was always afraid of blood, which is (laughs) now. (laughs) Now given that Alexis is on menstrual health, (laughs) but I think they wanted me to be a lawyer. Yeah. And then I didn't end up going to law school, even though I took the LSATs and I have a degree in organizational psychology. And so I ended up, working a very stereotypical kind of corporate management consulting to large corporation executive role. And I remember when I sat my parents down and told them that I wanted to quit and start this business, my mother actually cried. And wow. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was because they, they were so proud of this corporate, very perceived...
2: Fulfilling the dream. Fulfilling the dream.
1: Yes. Exactly, fulfilling the model minority stereotype, and they had worked so hard their entire lives so that I could get an Ivy League degree, so that I could be on this corporate career track. So for me to throw it all away to take this risk, it was very upsetting for them. And I remember them asking me, "Am I sure I had to quit? Could I just start it on the side?" And I remember saying, "I've been working on this on the side for the past year, and it's the time." and And I laid out my plans, and we had a three hour lunch. And
0: they weren't very supportive, to be honest. And how do they feel about it now?
1: Well, actually, Sharon, I think it was after we worked together on the beta. So for before launching Elix, we spent about almost two years in research development and beta testing our formulas and our online health assessment. I think we had over 2,000 people take the online health assessment in beta shipped over a thousand orders and saw that 93% felt an improvement after the first month. We had really great retention data from beta and that's what we used for fundraising. And I think once my parents saw that this is something I was ready to dedicate my life to, how passionate I was about the societal impact that it could have, and just the results that we were seeing and the overwhelming support, they ended up being one of our first investors.
0: Oh, that's great that they completely came around. I think that's how parents kind of make that judgment, right? It's usually just, they're usually upset when you want to quit your day job, but then when they see either the money coming in Public support. Sometimes it's having an article in the news. And for you, it was kind of all of that at once, right? Because I think you really, you guys really found some success after your initial beta period. So it's really, it's so nice to hear that they're completely on board, both financially and emotionally.
1: Yeah, my mother-in-law is actually our chief floral officer. She's always had a passion for flowers, so she does the flowers for all of our events. And my parents accompanied me on one of our first sourcing trips to China, where we visited a lot of remote indigenous villages, where indigenous minorities in China are still wild harvesting and growing some of the most like high-quality, wild-harvested herbs, like China's border with Tibet, China's border with North Korea. China's border with the Middle East. And so it's kind of come full circle because working on Elix has been a beautiful way to not only just reconnect with my culture, but also reconnecting with my family and my roots and spending more time with my grandfather and understanding his experience running the hospital in Hunan and what led him there. My grandfather does not have a medical background at all whatsoever, but he fought with the Red Army and the cultural in China's, well, the Chinese is known as like the War of Independence and, and. <laughs>
2: yeah. It's funny how it's named. You go to Vietnam, the museum is called the American (laughs) War Museum, right? Right. But yes. So, so what's, what is it called in China? Well, my, in China? my
1: grandfather calls it the War of Independence. And at the time, <laughs> I had a great uncle who was on the other side, who was part of the Kuomintang, the KMT. And so my grandfather was part of these young, rebellious students. They had like an underground newspaper talking about the need for revolution. And my grandfather was arrested with all of his other colleagues at the newspaper. And because of my uncle's position in the then military, my grandfather was released and he was on home arrest. And. And my great grandfather told him never to leave the house. And then he talks about how he broke free from his window and he left home to join the Red Army. And his family actually didn't see him again for six years until after the war. And then they thought he had died. And then he came home a decorated war soldier. That's so cool. I think that's the beautiful thing about and this time that we're living in. Through all of this heartbreak and tragedy, I guess, Sharon, as a fellow optimist, my hope is that because change needs to start our, on our individual levels to recognize like our sources of privilege, my hope is that this is a time where we can all reflect upon our individual, our family, and our cultural history, and also painful struggles that in making it in America. And so we can all come out of here being the opposite of colorblind, but really recognizing and celebrating these beautiful stories that make up what it means to be an American.
2: Yeah. Because it's about, uh, we are talking to, I guess it might've been a guest from Canada, but or actually no, it was a Jamaican American guest. Or it's the idea of melting pot is not the right thing because melting pot means you lose something versus a mosaic, or as our Jamaican-American guest said, no, it's got to be like a chili. <laughs> and I think that's more appropriate. Canada's a mosaic. America's a melting pot. And yeah, I got to ask one last question, kind of related to that family, your husband. So you wound up, it sounds like you dated a bunch <laughs> of it, non a bunch of white dudes. <laughs> I, and I, yep. Here's the thing. Yeah, look, okay, I totally <laughs> dated a bunch of white girls, and then I tried my hand at Indian girls, and- Couldn't do it. Sorry.
1: (laughs) Might have been the individuals, not the
2: collective. (laughs) Jerry Seinfeld has this amazing quote. He says, I don't understand racism. Why hate a whole group of people when you can hate an individual for like a lot of perfectly valid reasons? But correlation is not causation. I did not wind up with someone... That at the time, my parents would have been happier with, right? <laughs> but talking about that journey, you went from white dudes to a, yeah. to a Chinese dude. Well, so the dude, funny thing
1: like. is, I always assumed if I brought home a Chinese guy, my parents would be ecstatic.
2: I was going to say, and I don't have this on full authority, but isn't bringing home a white dude kind of like trading up for Chinese people? Isn't it perceived as that? Or am I wrong?
1: <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, I've never heard that. Because and when you look at the history of Chinatown, I think there's this desire of wanting to maintain cultural passing down the culture, not wanting the culture to die. And because of the history, I think we were talking about the Chinese Exclusion Act and other instances of systemic racism against Chinese community throughout American history. So I think there's been this solidarity. At least that's what I've always observed. So I can't speak for every Chinese family, but in mine, I always had the sense that if I brought home a Chinese guy, my parents would be ecstatic. And I remember when I told my parents about Justin, they were just like, oh, that's nice. And I was like, what? Like, that's it? But to answer your question, what was really special about Justin was, so I was born in China, came to the U.S. when I was five. Every summer, I would still go back to China to my parents wanted me to stay connected with the culture. And Justin was born in New York City when he was... Seven years old, his family actually moved back to China. His dad took an expat assignment in a small town outside of Shanghai. And every summer, he would come back to the U.S. to stay more closely connected with U.S. culture. And so we joke that as children, we could have been on the same flights coming back and forth, but in opposite directions. And so from the beginning, we always had this shared sense of being. Chinese and American? And how do we kind of simultaneously hold and value both identities? And that's something that's been really beautiful, especially in these conversations in US American politics conversations, where I feel like he just, we get each other on a deeper level. And even the, one of our first dates, we were we went somewhere in Chinatown and there was a nearby grocery store and we went to the grocery store together and it was like a memory down or it was a trip down memory lane where we saw these dried pork shreds and we're like, oh my gosh, did you used to eat this as a kid? Yeah, I stopped eating it because I thought it was weird. And he's like, oh my gosh, I love that. So all of these things that I loved intrinsically as a child, but then abandoned in my attempt to become more white, it was like those were things that were part of his upbringing and childhood and it made it okay again for me it's love and kind of welcome this part of my identity back
0: in. I love that. That's so cute. That's probably the best <laughs> first date story we've had on this podcast. All right. Well, we've had such a good conversation with you so far, Lulu. I think it's time for speed round. You ready for speed round? Okay. All right. What is your favorite mom dish?
1: Fence and I have no idea how to say it in English. It's like this couscous.
2: I don't even, what is that?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's a Hunan dish. It's like this couscous covered with five spice pork that's steamed with taro. It's the most delicious thing in the world. And it's my grandma's specialty.
2: Yum. Lulu, what is your least favorite food? Eggplant. In general? I've, I mean, always, every way it's made, or just off the vine.
1: Yeah, pretty much. I've tried. I've tried, Raman, every single preparation of eggplant from the Italian to the Indian to the Chinese. I don't like it. It's mushy and it's like weird. I don't like it.
0: <laughs> That's great. Who is someone out there that you would want to interview for a podcast?
1: I recently learned of her. Patty and I'm blanking on her last name, but she is the first Asian American female congresswoman. And she, I mean, she just broke down, Patsy Mink. Yeah, she just broke so many barriers as the first female and also Asian American elected representative to the Senate or Congress.
2: Cool. So last question. Are you ready? What does being a model minority mean to you?
1: It's become different the past couple of weeks. I'm learning, I'm still learning, but I'm learning that it means recognizing the privileges despite our struggles that have been afforded to us by the systems of institutionalized racism and discrimination in this country. And how do we use that privilege to create a country that actually lives up to our ideals?
2: That is a great answer especially, you know, I, as I mentioned at the top of the show, I've been struggling. I still am behind the premise of our show. The name of our show is it's always been problematic, but intentionally so. Right. But I like kind of using that. That's kind of how you take ownership of the term. Yeah. yeah. It's really good. Thank you so Lulu, much. Thank you.
1: Thank you guys. Thank you for creating this beautiful platform and space for us to reflect and learn and grow
0: together.
2: To be a minority, you have a superpower, and that superpower comes from being able to live in the mainstream world, where you can adapt, assimilate, code switch, whichever other term you want to use. And then you also live in your own cultural world, where you succeed, you have family, you have connections, you hopefully thrive. And that gives you the ability that makes you just a better leader. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there.
0: We'll talk to you soon.